lovers, welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to Episode 7 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and today I ask that you quiet your mind and listen with your heart to the experiences of Trina and her son Austin and Pam and her son Eli. Both boys were diagnosed at an early age with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and we should know their stories. Thank you uh, both for joining us today on Get Real. I think it's very generous of you both to to share your experiences about what Duchenne muscular dystrophy has done with respect to, you know, how your family's been living with this uh, all this time. And I appreciate your willingness to share that with the public. And I expect that at times it may be difficult. So again, I just want to let you know how grateful we all are that you're willing to, to share these very personal experiences with our listeners. So maybe, I guess, as a starting point, uh, there are certainly people who are listening that don't really know what Duchenne muscular dystrophy is. And so it might be helpful if you can explain that, you know, from the perspective of a mother. Um, you certainly know a lot about it, I'm sure. Okay. So Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a rare genetic muscle disorder. It's caused by changes or mutations of the DMD gene on the X chromosome. It really is a muscle wasting disease. So Everything in your body revolves around a muscle, right? Even your heart, your diaphragm, your lungs. Our son Eli, when he was first diagnosed, he was two and a half and he was born with this disease, but he only started showing symptoms, you know, around one or two. And it mimics uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, also known as ALS. The high majority occurs in boys. Uh, there are some girls that get Duchenne, but it mainly is a boy's disease and it robs them of all their physical ability. Usually by the time they're eight, nine, 10, 11, they lose their ability to walk and they're in a power chair full time. And after that, they lose their arm strength and they, they have issues with their heart and their lungs. So it's a devastating, devastating disease. And coming from the perspective of a mother, to watch your child slowly lose their abilities in their early teens when all their friends and brothers and sisters are moving forward with their life and, and playing sports and doing activities. Um, it, it's the most devastating thing you can imagine. It's terminal, right? Exactly. It, it is a terminal disease. And what happens is we all have a protein in our body called dystrophin. You know, so when you or a friend exercise, for example, your muscles break down, but you have this protein known as dystrophin, and it allows the, the muscle to build back up. Boys with Duchenne don't have dystrophin. So when they exert any kind of physical activity, their muscles break down and they don't rebuild. So they're born seemingly normal. Um, even until they're like three, four, five, or six, some aren't diagnosed until, you know, kindergarten or first grade but then things go south pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And what usually causes this disease to be terminal? So what happens is, um, you know, your heart's a muscle and we lose a lot of these uh, young men in their early, you know, late teens, early twenties to cardiomyopathy, but, you know, they'll have so much fibrosis of that heart muscle 
that they'll have a heart attack or, you know, they just, um, they have such low heart function that they go into heart failure at a young age. And um, that and the lungs, because when you don't have a strong lung capacity, and for example, if you live in, let's say the East Coast and you have, you know, harsh winters, your sons may develop pneumonia more frequently than somebody on the West Coast. So when you get pneumonia, these boys don't have a strong, strong lung capacity, so they can't cough very strongly. So we also lose a lot of them to pneumonia. And um, it's just very, very sad for a parent to have to witness this of their, you know, 14, 15, 18 year old son. So let me ask you, um, your son had Duchenne muscular dystrophy. What led you to have him evaluated? I mean, what were his symptoms? He was not meeting his milestones. He wasn't walking. He wasn't running or jumping and, you know, took him to the local pediatrician. Um, you know, didn't really think much of it. You know, it is a rare disease. So pediatricians don't see Duchenne as often. So, you know, they kind of chalked it up to, oh, he's, you know, one of many of your children and, you know, you probably baby him, you carry him. And it was all true. But, you know, after two years of him not meeting his milestones, um, we had some blood work done. And within 24, 48 hours, they told us about Duchenne. So we suspected there was something wrong. He did not walk and talk until um, he was older. He didn't start walking until he was uh, almost 19 months old. So we brought this up frequently to the pediatrician. And they were like, well, some kids just develop later than others. And she wasn't too concerned about it. But I kept bringing it up. And they even sent a physical therapist to come check him out. And they were like, no, we're not really concerned about it. But I was really concerned about it because he was not our first baby. He was our second baby. And there was just something that was not right. And then when he was about five years old, he started going to school. And we noticed as he was trying to get up and down the steps um, for the bus and just even going up and down the steps for our house, that there was something definitely wrong. So I called the pediatrician again and I'm like, there's something really wrong and I need you to watch him go up and down stairs. And her office was on the second um, level of the hospital. So she had him just go up like three or four stairs and she was like, pick him up. I think I know what's wrong. And she went into her office and she called the neurologist on the spot. And that's the first time we ever heard the word Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It changed our world forever. You know, I, I, I say I died that day because um, it was hard. You know, when, when you look at this two-year-old with these this beautiful face and he's got older brothers and sisters that love him and that they might have to bury their brother was was very, very difficult. Um, well, we had the blood work and everything, and we got the call. And um, yeah, my husband was there, and he, he just didn't believe it. You just can't, you literally can't believe it. You can't believe that this beautiful little person that's walking around your house may not graduate from high school. You know, you just literally can't wrap your brain around it. Yeah. What What did the doctors tell you initially, you know, when you got that diagnosis about what to expect? You know, did they talk about life expectancy? Did they prepare you? The doctor called us and he said he does have Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, 
this is what's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. At this point in time, we just recommend that you take him home and love him. And I'm like, what? He's five and a half years old. Like, why are you telling me there's nothing that we can do about this disorder? And we take him home and we love him. And I was not okay with that. I was very upset. It was really difficult. I mean, this is your your child, your baby, and you have all this this picture in your head about how life is supposed to be and you have a healthy baby and this is what's supposed to happen and then it's just all taken away from you and then once you find out it's a genetic condition and they make you do genetic testing and you find out that you're the carrier it's so you kind of have this war within yourself what your brain knows is not your fault but your heart feels like it's your fault so you feel like this is something that you did to your child um, so that everything that they have to go through is because of you. And and I guess I went to depression for a few months and then I just started researching and I was just spend every minute of every night when I was supposed to be sleeping, just researching. And I'm like, this is not okay. This is not the answer. And this is not okay with me. I'm not going to just take him home and love him and not do anything about it. You know, the pediatrician that we had, um, had taken care of all of our, all of our children. So we had become, you know, pretty friendly and, and she was, I I don't want to say hopefully optimistic, but she said, you know, the MDA has been raising money for years. They've got to be getting close to something. So if that was what she was trying to give us hope on, okay, it, did it work? Not really. You know, you're still, you just focus on, you know, that, that terminal diagnosis, that those words. So to have to try to explain to family and to be want to explain it to family right now, because we were in writhing, writhing pain. I mean, when I say pain, I was walking myself into like a mental institution. (laughs) Like I was ready to check out. Like I'm like, somebody just, you know, it was, it was brutal. But you know, I had to, you know, had to kind of pull my big girl pants up and, and say, I, we have, I have three sons and some daughters that I have to take, you know, be around for, for my children. So I can't just lock myself away in a hospital and pretend like this didn't happen. Yeah. I just wanted to, you know, just, I needed to be like strapped to a bed and just, (laughs) and just, you know, it was, it was bad. It was bad. But, uh, as, as I was literally walking to talk to a psychiatrist, um, my phone rang and it was a, another Duchenne mom. And, and when I picked up the phone, she sounded happy. And I said, how can you be happy? And, and she said, you know, it's not going to be the life that you thought your, your son was going to have, but it's going to be a good one for as long as you have him. And um, that's all it took for me to like, not admit myself (laughs) into the hospital. I got back in the car and said, okay, what do we need to do now? You know, I, I went home with a renewed sense of, of hope because that's what we want, right? We just, we, we, we hope it's in time for our sons. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm assuming that everybody's experience is a little different, but for the most part, there's a general pattern in terms of how the disease progresses, right? I really want our listeners to be able to visualize the progression of this disorder. Can you take us through his progression and what you folks were experiencing throughout that? 
So he was diagnosed at five and a half and he um, lost his ability to walk at the age of 10. And it truly seemed like it happened overnight. In the meantime, before they completely lose their ability to walk, they have frequent falls. Like they'll just be walking and a leg will give out and they'll fall. Sometimes they'll break a leg. And sometimes if you break a leg, then you lose your ability to walk faster. We were fortunate that Austin never broke any legs. Just one night he walked and the next day he didn't and he never walked again. So he went into a wheelchair permanently at the age of 10. Then he started having issues with smooth muscle. It doesn't always affect the smooth muscles of like the esophagus and the stomach. Austin seemed to have a um, very severe phenotype and it affected those muscles. So he had to have lots of surgeries for those issues. He started having trouble at a really young age with being able to swallow and with his stomach just working. Like his stomach just basically stopped working for a little while. So he had to have a feeding tube. And these issues do happen later on in life. He just had them really early. And then it started going up to his 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 trunk and then his um his respiratory muscles. We were very lucky that his cardiac muscles were doing really well. So a lot of boys either start having issues with respiratory muscles or cardiac muscles. It's usually one or the other at first. So his heart was really good and then his lung function started declining. So that's where his, his biggest issues were. And then he started having trouble swallowing. Then he started having trouble being able to, to pick up his arms. So we got him a pair of robotic arms to help him to have good quality of life and be able to move his arms. And then eventually he, even with the use of the robotic arms, he couldn't pick up his arms anymore and he could just use his fingers. So, um, you know, I was, you know, just a normal kiddo, beautiful little baby boy. And, you know, we just got him home and he was just perfect. And then after a few months, you know, just like I mentioned earlier, the, the milestones that weren't just weren't quite there. And, and then, you know, we get into school age and, you know, he's falling a little bit more and he's tripping and he can't keep up with his friends. And so at this point, you know, kindergarten, first, second grade, you know, when you should be in gym class and playing kickball and all that kind of stuff, you know, he's sitting on the sidelines in a little scooter. So, um, you know, that's, it, it's hard stuff. So we, we did have an aid and a lot of Duchenne boys do have one-on-one aids that help them with carrying a backpack and opening their books and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, that helped. So young boys with Duchenne, when they start to lose their arm function, they can't even drive the scooter because their arms aren't strong enough to hold the, the driving piece. So yeah, at around, I would say about 11-ish, you know, going into early middle school, we had to say, okay, it's it's time now for that power chair. and when boys are falling a lot because their muscles are deteriorating, their risk of fracture is very intense. And if these boys fall and break a large bone, like a femur, um, they could die if they get, it's called fatty embolism syndrome, they could die within 24, 48 hours because these boys take a steroid forever. Um, and steroids cause your bones to get weaker. So when you fall, you're, you're at risk for, for more of a bone break. So, you know, fast forward, he's in middle school and you know, he's in his power chair and he's got his aide not hovering over him, but you know, that his aide needs to, needs to help him with everything. He can't carry his lunch tray. He can't open up his milk carton. He can't open up his pudding snack pack, you know, so the aide has to be there to help him while also trying to give him a little dignity and a little space so he can be social with his friends at lunch, right? Nobody wants to sit at the lunch table with 
a kid in a wheelchair who's got his 35 year old aide next to him. You know what I mean? So that's kind of the progression there. And, um, you know, one day, of course, we have to shower him. He can't do any of that. And um, he fell out of his shower chair and broke his femur. He broke his other ankle and um, he did develop fatty embolism syndrome. And luckily we caught it quick enough so it didn't develop into anything terminal. But some of these little things are very real and life-threatening. So he is in high school and uh, he can still feed himself. And, you know, we're thankful for that. But he can't lift like a, a water bottle that's full and take a sip. We have to help him. He can't brush his teeth in the morning. You know, he can't comb his hair. He can't toilet himself. So these are just things that, you know, we do for him as a family because we love him and he's, he's our child. Yeah. Aside from the, the power chair, it seems like these boys need a lot of special equipment, you know, and assist devices to help them just do ordinary everyday things. Um, I'm in some cases even breathing, right? You know, what other kind of special equipment and assist devices uh, do boys with Duchenne typically need? Maybe you can explain some of that. Oh, they need so many. Your house basically turned into a hospital. They need so many pieces of equipment. And it's hard for them because they're little boys. They just want to be outside being active with their friends. And instead, they have to depend on all these pieces of equipment. They need a wheelchair. They need a special shower chair. Austin had to be in a hospital bed at an early age because of the effects on his smooth muscles. They need what they call a cough assist, which helps them when they have a cold get some of that phlegm and some of that gooky stuff out because if it gets stuck in there they can get pneumonia and and die most of these boys are on a bipap machine which is similar to a cpap but it's bipaps um, a lot of these boys do develop obstructive sleep apnea and you know you just want to make sure that they're getting good oxygen and all that carbon dioxide all that stuff is getting inputted and outputted so they are many of them even at an early age have to sleep with this thing on their face and they also have to wear night splints to keep their feet from like twisting in when we call it contractures. So, you know, they wear hand splints, night splints. Some have, as they get a little older, some are, have feeding tubes. They can't even eat regular food because they can't digest it properly. We have um, a lift that's built into our ceiling so we don't physically have to lift him because most times parents and siblings are the caregivers, right? And these boys, because they're on steroids, tend to get heavy and they're not moving around. They're in, they're in a power chair, so it's not like they're burning calories. And uh, Eli is, is about 140 pounds and it's dead weight. So, you know, we have the ceiling lift that we can maneuver him around to his bed and to the toilet and to the shower, which is fantastic because if not, we would have to lift him. And if mom and dad and, and brothers and sisters' backs aren't strong, nobody can care for him. Um, then Austin had a feeding tube. So we had to do the feeding pump. We had to do the feeding bags. We had to go to the hospital every six months to have it changed. We had the robotic arms. You have the special uh, power wheelchair, which a power wheelchair is like $50,000. You have all the fights with the insurance companies who don't think these pieces of equipment are medically necessary. So sometimes it takes 18 months to get these equipment covered. 
you need a special wheelchair van that is ridiculously expensive and it's so hard for families to be able to afford. Plus the amount of money it costs you to be able to take your child to the specialist appointments that they need to go on twice a year, especially if you have to travel across the country, which so many families have to do because local hospitals are not familiar with the disease. Mm. So describe a, like a normal day in the life of, of caring for your son or for any boy with Duchenne. The disease progresses so much they can't do anything for themselves. Any activity of daily, daily living, you have to do for them. So in the mornings, you had to bathe him. You had to dress him. You had to brush his teeth. So you get him out of his bed. You had to carry him to his wheelchair if we wanted to go somewhere, like going to the movies, you have to load him up in the power wheelchair, load him up in the van, strap him in, go to the movies, unload him. He had a service dog, so we had to see about the service dog. Then when you come back home, then he had to do everything again at night. So, you know, we've got to get the shower. We've got to get Eli to the toilet. And that, again, involves this Hoyer lift that I talk about. It's like a little contraption basket that we roll him around in so we can safely lift him. And he takes tons of medications. So his nighttime meds, imagine being in bed and not being able to position yourself and scratch your leg or scratch your face or if there's a fly buzzing around. So every two hours, usually I get a mom, mom, dad, dad, somebody, can you roll me? I need to pee. So families that have Duchenne boys very rarely get to sleep. You know, the nighttime is difficult. Well, there'll be some times when Eli doesn't call us too much, but we have a monitor that we can see him and hear him at all times. But when he's in bed, he can't move. They can't roll themselves. So sometimes, some nights I had to roll him every 30 minutes. Some nights it was every two hours. It just depends. It's not something they want to do because they want to sleep and they want you to be able to sleep. But they can't turn themselves. If their head itches, you have to scratch their head. They can't do any of these things for themselves because they can't pick up their arm. They can't roll their legs. So you, you didn't get any sleep at all. Hmm. One of the things that you most wish your son could still do, the things that you miss the most. I think for all of us, the biggest thing that he lost that was the hardest was when he lost the ability to give you a hug. Is to give his mom a hug. The walking is so insignificant at this point. But he can't hug me anymore. And that's, that's hard. That's hard. Hmm. What kind of discussions you know, have you had with, with your son throughout his progression? You know, what kind of questions has he asked? Well, he did ask, I think about a year ago about death. And um, we just answer in an age appropriate way. And we're honest. We don't skirt around the issue. We say, you know what? Yeah, we're, we're all going to go, honey. We're, we don't know when. I say, mommy could get there before you, you could get there before me, but it's going to be a fantastic place and you're going to be able to, to run and jump and do great things. And, and mommy's going to be, you know, skinnier than she is now. And, you know, all the, you know, so I, I kind of try to make it not so scary for him, if that even makes any sense to any of the listeners. But um, we answer his questions as they come up in an age appropriate way. And he, you know, he's asked 
some questions like, mommy, I wish if we would go to, let's say to a hockey game, I wish I could, I wonder what it feels like to play hockey. And that kills you. It kills you. Um, and then that's when we say, well, honey, someday you will be able to play hockey. It might not be here. It might be in heaven, but you'll be able to play hockey. And he's like, okay, mom, you know, so I don't know if that's the right thing to say. I don't know, but it's what helps all of us cope and deal with, you know, the inevitable. So I think you're a really beautiful human being and just an amazing mom, just so strong and so loving. And, uh, and I don't think you should ever question how you're handling any of it. It sounds to me like you're just handling it all through the lens of love. And I don't see how it could be better than that. You've mentioned a couple of times now that Eli is on tons of medications. Maybe you can talk about those. Well, he's on three or four heart medications, you know, some vitamin D. He's on an osteoporosis medicine because he's also on a steroid, which is similar to prednisone. And prednisone is a fantastic drug. It's a miracle for some things, but it wreaks havoc and causes a lot of side effects. And one of the main side effects is osteoporosis. So a lot of boys that have Duchenne and they're on steroids get osteoporosis. So they're on drugs for that. And uh, Eli has been on a, a clinical trial drug for, gosh, seven, eight years now. Is it showing promise? We hope so. Is it maintaining him? We think so. But again, these clinical trials are, they're not a guarantee, but they're a test. So we were willing to be, be the family that helps pioneer some of these trials. And I often say, if not us, who, if not now, when? I don't want families 20 years from now, you know, to have to go through what we went through. And um, Eli knows that he's a warrior, that he's helping his other future Duchenne brothers, whether this drug works for him or not. But he's been on a, a clinical trial for a number of years. And, uh, um, you know, we're just praying, we're praying it gets to um, the FDA, gets approval. And what's the goal of this particular trial? What, what are they hoping the outcome will be? Well, it's, it's just to maintain muscle and build the dystrophin that I talked about. These boys don't have dystrophin, but it's looking like they might be producing some because of this clinical trial. So the hope of this drug is that it'll maintain function. Once a boy is in a power chair, is this drug going to make him be able to get up and walk? No, you need a cure for that, right? But it'll maintain his quality of life to be able to feed himself, to be able to use his hand for his joystick on his power chair, to be able to turn a page in a magazine, to be able to play video games and hold that controller. It's not just about the walking, it's about the quality of life and his heart and his hand strength and his neck strength, you know, that, that kind of thing. So we're, we're hopeful that soon the FDA will approve it, but it, it's a process. You know, um, you're aware of this, I'm sure, but maybe our listeners aren't, but, um, you know, a good deal of the studies that have been done to help us understand Duchenne muscular dystrophy and the mechanisms behind what causes it, which then gives you some insight into what needs to be done to treat it, right? What kind of interventions uh, can be created to try and improve these quality of life issues that you just mentioned. A lot of that work is done in dogs who actually also get Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And so uh, they're bred with, you know, the right parents are put together so that the offspring will have this disorder. And a lot has been learned from dogs that is now uh, manifesting in the clinical trials that you describe. I mean, how do you feel about that? We love our animals. Eli is getting his service dog soon and we love them, but we're not going to get anywhere if research isn't done. It, it just can't happen. In any aspect of any disease process, 
be it cancer, be it Lou Gehrig's, be it multiple sclerosis, be it anything. We are grateful that our little four-legged friends are helping to pave the way and help us get to a cure because if not, Eli won't be here. You know, you just can't take two dandelions outside, mush them together and put it into a, a pill and say, okay, this is going to cure this disease. No, we need, we need research done on living organisms. And it does start at that level. You know, it starts with mice and then it goes to bigger animals. And you know, we love these animals and we're so grateful because um, they, are, they are what's going to get us to the finish line. Yeah. So you're probably aware that uh, PETA has uh, singled out one particular institution in Texas, uh, Texas A&M. Uh, there was a very, very prominent you know, lifelong career veteran in Duchenne muscular dystrophy research there. Um, he's not there anymore, and but they've shut down the breeding program, so they, they can't generate more dogs with Duchenne to continue these studies. And, you know, the, the program is, is pretty much dwindling, and they, they continue now for years to involve um, celebrities, including Paul McCartney um, and others, you know, to put pressure on this institution to just stop all of this research. And there's a, there's a lot of pressure on the public as well, you know, just stop this research. And what they keep saying is it hasn't led to a cure, so it's useless. How do you feel about that? If they could just come to our home, come to any family's home that's dealing with this disease, they will see that, yes, the cure is the ultimate goal, but there's so many things that lead up to it that would make a fantastic quality of life for these young men. And it's not about the, the final stage of, okay, this is the pill, we've got it, it's a cure, we're done. It's not how life-threatening diseases work. We're trying to get it to almost like the AIDS cocktail, where you take a couple pharmaceutical agents to prolong a very meaningful life. So, you know, it's it's just absolutely wrong and devastating. There's medicines that could be produced that are halted, and there's boys dying because it's a disgrace. And like I said, I love animals. And it blows my mind that people aren't educated enough to know what goes on to get a drug to its end stage to help these people with the disorder like Duchenne. Yeah, you raise a really, really important point. The, the, the public is focused on cures, right? And, and of course, PETA is directing everybody to consider that anything that isn't cured uh, is just pointless, right? But but you raise a really, really important point. It's not just about cures. It's about progress. It's about quality of life. And I mean, here's a question for you. Has, has there been a change in life expectancy for these boys over the past you know, 30, 20 years? Oh, absolutely. Because of research. These boys were given a death sentence 20 years ago. Many families were told, go home and love your kid. There's nothing we can do. But in the past 20-ish years, our boys are living into their mid-30s and 40s. Some are getting married. Some are fathering children and, and living meaningful, meaningful lives. And it's because of research. Just because it's a rare disease and it happens in one in every, I think it's 5,000 boys, there are thousands of rare diseases. So is this population just not as important? because they are rare. But if you put them all together, it, it makes a pretty big population. And they can't be ignored. They really can't. My, my son deserves the best meaningful life th that I can give him. And I will seek out treatments. I will seek out you know, research. And I will advocate at the local level, state level, and national level to make people listen to why the research needs to continue. I found my way to a few Duchenne-specific uh, nonprofits, and a few of them are very, very active on the Hill in Washington and at the state level. So 
we've lobbied enough over the past many years that we're on the map and we have fantastic cheerleaders when it comes to bipartisan help on both sides that have really taken to our cause and are fighting for research dollars to continue to be driven to the NIH for research for Duchenne. So we're just trying very hard to keep Duchenne in front of these politicians and to have them hear our story and hear why it's why we're so passionate and why we need the money we need to get medicines in the pipeline. What are researchers and physicians working on now that makes you particularly hopeful? It's more right now about quality of life and prolonging a meaningful life. But the cure, the cure is we're getting there, especially with gene therapy. And if you can start it, you know, when, when a, a boy gets diagnosed, if gene therapy gets approved and it gets through the research uh, channels and we can get this to the end line, you know, these boys will be given a shot or a pill when they're born and they won't develop into a full-blown Duchenne person. And it's just, you know, the gene therapy is big, but it's also some of the other clinical trials that are in the works have to do with muscle function and, you know, muscle strength and things like that. So there's just so many different ways to tackle it. And we just need the research to happen on all different angles to get to the end line. If you could uh, speak to all of the researchers and all of the research animals who have been a part of uh, studies related to Duchenne and who continue to be part of studies related to Duchenne, what would you say to them? I would say don't give up on us. And I would say thank you for thinking of our boys. Because when you look at one Duchenne boy and you see the life in their eyes and in their heart, I mean, I just want, to, I just want those researchers to not stop and to continue to fight for those with rare disease, especially boys with Duchenne, and to those precious animals. Like, thank you. Your amazing life has not gone unnoticed. And we are just thankful that the research is, is where it is now as opposed to 20, 30 years ago. Okay. So maybe you can share with us the rest of the story related to Austin. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that we found out that Austin had a severe phenotype of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So we knew for a few years that he was affected more severely than others with the same um, deletion that he had. So I want to say about two years ago, we found out that his respiratory muscles had declined a lot. We tried another medication to slow down the progression of it, and then COVID hit. So we were going to Cincinnati Children's every six months, but then COVID hit, so we had to miss an appointment. So we missed an appointment, and then when we went back for another appointment, they did some testing, because they always do a bunch of testing. You go for a week, and they do testing for three or four days, and then the last day, you see everybody in clinic, and they go over all the test results. So they came to us, and... They told us that Austin was now in the final stages of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, and he was in respiratory failure. And he had two options. He could um, get a trach or he could go home on hospice. And we told Austin he could decide. And he said he didn't want to live on a trach. He did not want to be on a machine for the rest of his life. He wanted to go home on hospice. He was 16 years old at the time. And we weren't prepared for that appointment. And he came home and he was so brave and he had a book. And in his book, 
So Austin's wishes and his number one wish was that Astro stayed home. Because Astro is still really young and service dogs don't normally retire until they're they're older. But he said he knew Astro could go help another family if something happened to him. But his number one wish was that Astro would stay home and always live with us. But he came home and he, he wrote a book with all his wishes. And I mean, who, who does that? It's hard for grown-ups to do that. And this child is 16 years old. I had to do a book with his final wishes. And then he was on hospice for eight months and he declined pretty rapidly. And then um, on May 14th, at 17 years old, he passed away from respiratory failure from Tushan muscular dystrophy. But he was so brave. He was one of the bravest people I've ever met in my life. And he was so loved. And we tried to give him the best possible life we could. And we brought him on many, many adventures. Were you with him, Trina? Yes. I was with him. My husband was with him. If you could speak with Austin right now, what would you say to him? I tell him how much I love him and how much we miss him. But I know he is no longer suffering. So as hard as it is for us right now, I know he has to be in a better place. But I would give anything anything to have him back. What would you like our listeners to know about your son now and years from now? That he was so special and so brave. He he didn't complain about doing anything that he needed to do for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, like blood work, doing the, the clinical trial. He took it like a champ because he was determined that he was going to be cured. So he did what he needed to do. He said he was the bravest person that I've ever known in my whole entire life. And he was so very loved. Well, that's clear. I think you're an amazing family, and I would say the same about all of you. You're very brave, and you're very loving. And I'm so sorry for this loss and and everything you went through with your baby. And I thank you so very much for sharing this very, very personal story with our listeners. Um, Do you think it's important for them to know? I do, because we need to do everything that we can to find treatment options and possible cure for Duchenne muscular dystrophy to, to stop things like this from happening. One last thing I want to ask you. There are groups that oppose this work. Um, how do you feel about that? And, and what would you have to say to them? That I think they need to spend one day with a family affected by this disease for them to see what's really going on. And then they would know that what they're doing is, is wrong. Like this work needs to, to continue. Do you agree with Trina and Pam or not? Is it ethical 
for us to study animals to improve the quality of human and animal lives? Is it ethical for us to not do so and simply ignore the suffering of others? Are questions about ethics truly relevant for this discussion in the first place? I mean, arguments about ethics are really about morality. Are we talking about morality here? Or are we talking about love? Can love be immoral? Let me ask you a question. What would you want for yourself and your loved ones if this was your story? And more importantly, are you willing to let strangers who oppose this work for their own philosophical reasons take your options away from you? Tune in next month to learn about how Duchenne is actually studied in dogs. You can check for announcements by following us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I'm grateful to all of you for joining us today. If this podcast has shaped your understanding of public health and the involvement of animals in research, please become a Get Real monthly supporter. Your donation will help us continue to bring honest content to everyone who benefits from medical advances. We all deserve to know the facts. You can become a supporter and learn more about how research animals are truly cared for by visiting our website at getrealpodcast.info. We'll talk soon. Oh,